Well, take out your Bibles. Jump it back into Hebrews. It's the natural thing to do after a work trip like that, right? Go back to the next verse. So that's what we're going to do. Title of the message is Hurry Up and Wait. Uh, I have no idea how much time I have. I'm going to check my watch now. About normal time, so we should be okay. I was going to say you'd have to hurry up and wait for the next part of this message, but I think we can do it all tonight. Hebrews 11. Before we jump in, let's have another word of prayer. Father, we do love you. We do thank you for the reports we got to hear tonight. Um, these, uh, these trips, they do affect all of us here at this church in some way or another. And uh, Lord, we can be encouraged by what you're doing. And we do thank you for the, uh, those who share tonight. Thank you for giving them the, the courage to do that. And I do pray, Lord, that as we look into your word, as we always pray, we pray that we'll understand what it says. We'll pray that we'll be accurate with how we understand it and very diligent in our application of it. And that we'll seek to do it not in our own strength, not in our flesh, but in the, the power that the Spirit gives us. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray, Lord, that we would be people of, of faith, men and women of faith, who trust you to keep your promises in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, guys, are both these microphones on? Okay. All right, I want you to think back to about a month ago, whenever we were in, at the end of chapter 10 in Hebrews, and think about where we last saw the original readers of the Hebrews. Think about what circumstances we left them in. If you can remember, it was a Sunday morning when we covered that situation. What, do you remember what condition that they were in? If you look back at there, you don't turn there now, but back at the, uh, in chapter 10, verse 32 in that area, they were people who had faced serious trials up to that point because of their commitment to Christ. They were mistreated, they were abused, they were uh, mocked publicly, they were shamed probably imprisoned, had their property confiscated, all kinds of problems. And if they kept openly identifying with Christ, things were going to get worse for these original readers. The author up to that point had supported their view of Christ after pillar after pillar after pillar of truth about the finished work of Christ, supporting who the Christ is, what he's done, and trying to bolster their faith. And now it's time for them to act on the truth that they've been hearing. Now, as we get to chapter 11, we've reached, uh, reached a section that's going to tell us how we should apply what we've been learning about Christ. We've learned so much about him, now we're going to see how we should apply it. And we're going to be in a section that's going to emphasize our responsibility. Because we are responsible people before the Lord. And I'll show you what D.A. Carson said, a very biblical way of putting it. He said, God is absolutely sovereign. But... His sovereignty never functions in Scripture to reduce human responsibility. Human beings are responsible creatures. You say, well, I know some irresponsible people. but No, that's not what he's saying. They're responsible in terms of they have responsibility. Human beings are responsible creatures. However, on the other side, human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. So we are responsible, we are responsible creatures. We are responsible before God. He is totally sovereign. No man or woman has ever messed up God's eternal plan. God has never had a plan B. It's not part of his vocabulary. He's always had the plan. Okay? But at the same time, we are responsible because we are sinners. We're sinners by nature, but not sinners just by nature, but sinners 
by choice. Sinners because we want to be. When we stand before Christ one day at the judgment, we're not going to be able to... Or I never actually wanted to do it. We won't be able to say that. The reason why everyone must stand before the judgment seat of Christ is because everyone has sinned. Sin is something that everyone has thought on, craved, meditated on, and pursued, and acted on. It's something that we wanted to do. Saying that God made me do it, or God's providence put me into a place where I stumbled, or God didn't get me out of a certain situation, so I fell into the sin, that's not going to work either. We are responsible creatures before God, and we sin because, ultimately, we want to do it. And we will be held accountable for the sin that we've committed. That's bad news. So here's where I think we need to blaze it onto our hearts, brand it onto our brains. We want to know that the foundation of a right response to God is faith. We could try to pile up our obedience. We could try to pile up our hard work, our sincerity, and a host of all kinds of good things. But unless faith in the finished work of Christ is the foundation of those things, those things are worse, actually, than nothing. We're building our foundation on sand. The foundation of a right response to God is faith. That's the bottom of it all. And that's precisely what the author of Hebrews is showing us in chapter 11. In this chapter, there are stories of the men and women of faith in Israel's history. These are stories that we're all very familiar with. None of these stories catch us by surprise. None of these people catch us by surprise. We know about them. But what the author of Hebrews has done is he's gone back into their lives. He's exegeted their stories. He's looked at Old Testament scripture, and he's drawn out lessons about faith. And whenever we read Hebrews chapter 11, all we have to do is just listen. Listen to what? The stories are, listen to what the principles about faith that are right there waiting for us. And that's what we're going to start doing. We've already started about a few weeks ago. That's what we're going to be doing tonight in the life of Abraham and his family. Last time we looked at biblical faith from creation all the way to the flood in Noah's time. And tonight we're going to be looking at faith in the life of Abraham and his family. And if you look at chapter 11, Abraham actually and, and his immediate family, they have the most information given in the book in this chapter. They have about 15 verses dedicated to describing what happened in their lives. Second place would be Moses. He has seven verses, and the rest of them just have short little clips about what happened in their lives. So there's a, there's a big deal being made here about Abraham. So we're going to learn several lessons from his life. Tonight we're just going to first get into the uh, first two lessons that are mentioned here, and we'll, we'll see those a little, little bit later. But from a human standpoint, Abraham is the man who started it all isn't he? When you look at the human level, that's where it all started. It's the man that God chose to mark out his special people, the Israelites. It's the man that God chose to bless all the nations of the earth. It all started with this guy, Abraham. Right from the very beginning of God's people, we see that God's foundational desire for his people the way that they would live for him, the way that they would glorify him, the way that they would obey him is by faith. We see that at the very beginning when God chose Abraham, right from the very beginning of God's people, when God marked out his chosen people through one man, Abraham, right from the start, the path toward experiencing the fulfillment of God's promises is faith. 
That's the foundation. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Without faith, it's impossible to live for God and fulfill his desires for our lives. So as we study this chapter more, I want to do two things. I want you to be able to do two things. Our goal is for you to grow in your understanding of faith and then grow in your exercise of faith. Those two things. So say you, say you want to get in shape. What's the first thing you do usually if you want to get in shape? You go buy a book on getting in shape, right? And then you can sit there on your desk. And that makes you get in shape, right? No. What if you read it every day and you understand it very well? That makes you get in shape, right? No. Now, is that important? Yeah, you want to understand how it works. You don't want to just go out there and start doing a bunch of stuff and hurt yourself. So you want to understand it, but then you also want to go out and do what? You want to exercise it. So that's what we want to do with biblical faith. We want to understand it so that we can exercise it the right way. So several lessons from the life of Abraham, but two we'll look at tonight. The first lesson I want you to see about Abraham is obedience by faith. Obedience by faith. We haven't read our text yet, so look down in verse 8, and we'll read that verse, and we'll see this lesson. Hebrews 11:8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. <clears throat> and he went out, not knowing where he was going. Obedience by faith. I want you to see the sequence of things, the order of things. Think about this. God called Abraham. Abraham believed God. And then Abraham obeyed God. That was the right order. That's how it happened. That's always the order, isn't it? So here I want you to see divine calling, wholehearted belief, and unhesitating obedience. So think first about divine calling. And you turn back to Genesis chapter 12, if you don't mind. Genesis 12, well, you can kind of keep your finger there between Genesis 12 and Hebrews 11. But it happened way back in Genesis chapter 12. A lot had happened up to this point in the story of Genesis. Think about the things that have happened. Talked about the creation of the world, then the corruption that came in through Adam and Eve, and then more corruption in chapter 6 with the, the time of the flood. Then the flood came itself, and then, then everything was perfect, right? No, it's like it started back all over again. Then Babel came. And there's the confusion. And then you get to chapter 11, and then there's a genealogy. And you say, right, when you get to a genealogy, that's where you skip over it, right? No, you don't skip over genealogy. Do you know why you should not skip over genealogies? Nine times out of ten, when you read a genealogy in Scripture, something very exciting is going to happen. Something very important is going to happen. After all those names, all those names are there for a reason trying to get to an event that happened with a particular person. Now think about this genealogy in chapter 11. It takes up most of the chapter of Genesis chapter 11. You have the descendants of Shem, who is the son of Noah. And then he has a son, and he has a son, and he has a son, and he has a son. And who ultimately is born at the end of that? This guy named Abram, right? Mur the Chaldees. And then look what God says to this guy named Abram. This long list of names, then all of a sudden this guy, Abram's picked out of this list of names, and then God says something to him. Look it down at Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Sounds pretty easy, right? To the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. 
and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what I want you to see is this. This call, did it come from Abraham's imagination? Was it a feeling he had in his gut? Was he following a hunch at this point? And thought, hmm, I wonder if I should do something about this hunch I have. What, what was happening? This was a direct, divine calling. This was a calling directly from the mouth of God to Abram. This is God in his sovereignty calling out a person for service in his kingdom. It's a divine calling. Listen to those words. Now the Lord said to Abram. That's what happened. Now the big question we all have at this point is, but how do I know if the Lord is calling me to do something? I'm glad you asked that, and we'll talk about it a little bit later. Now I want you to see the second step in this progression. You have divine calling, then you have wholehearted belief. When we say belief in Greek, this word for belief or faith, it's the same word, so we're using those interchangeably, okay? But there's wholehearted belief. Verse 8 says that when Abraham was called, he responded, what are the first two words of that verse? By faith. He was responded by faith. Now, when we started chapter 11 a few weeks ago, we talked about three R's of faith. Three R's of faith. We gave a little definition of faith. And I know you all remember, but you're just being very modest right now and you're holding it to yourself. So I'll just remind you. It's, faith is a reasoned response to revelation. It's a reasoned response to revelation. First, it's reasoned. Okay, what do I mean by that? When we talk about biblical faith, are we talking about something that requires you, if it's going to work, you have to shut off your mind? Is that what we're saying? Whenever, you say, whenever we say, put, you know, put your faith in Christ, are we saying, just shut off all of your thinking capacities, uh, shut off all tendencies toward logic, just turn all those off and just close your eyes and start walking? Is that what we're saying? No, that's not what we're saying at all when it comes to biblical faith. Biblical faith is a call to engage your mind with ultimate realities. It's to put your mind, it is to think. If it is not reasoned, it's not a biblical faith. And second, it's a response. Biblical faith is not a force that overtakes you. Faith just doesn't come and go whenever it wishes. It's not a mystical vapor that's there for a moment and then gone the next minute. It's not... Also, it's not a passive process. When you read the Bible, when you see how it describes faith, one of the primary designations that the Bible gives faith is that it is the required human response to God. God calls us to put faith in him. That is the required response he's given us. It's something that we exercise. It's something that we engage in. But it's not just those two things. It's not just reason. It's not just a response. But what is it responding to? And this is one of the keys. What is this a response to? Because we can reason about a lot of things. We can respond to a lot of things. But what's the key to biblical faith? It's a response to revelation. And when I say, about, when I say revelation, I'm not talking about the book of Revelation. But I'm talking about what God has revealed. I'm talking about what God has spoken. What he has said. I'm talking about truth, promises that he has told us. 
things that he has disclosed to his people. So this is latching on to God himself. You can say, well, that's a nice definition, but I don't see God. I don't feel Jesus walking with me. I don't see my circumstances getting any better. I can't touch and feel my heavenly inheritance. None of those things are true. So if it's something you can't see, does that mean it's false at this point? Because at the beginning of chapter 12, it was something that is not seen, right? Now think about this. Whenever I was a uh, little boy, one of my first plane flights, the, uh, as I walked by the front of the plane, the captain invited me into the cockpit. Have you ever been in the cockpit of an airplane, like a nice 747? I walked in there, and what did I see? Probably the same thing that strikes you is all of the lights, all of the buttons, all of the levers, all of the little instruments that are just covering the whole cockpit. And what also, another thing that struck me is the windows. They were like really tiny. I thought, how are they going to look down and see if they're going to hit something? Or how are they going to know where to turn? It's, how are they going to be able to see? How are they going to navigate? Pilots rely on navigational instruments, don't they? So is it ever a problem? Have you ever worried, whenever you guys were flying to Honduras, did you worry that uh, whenever you guys came out of the clouds, that the pilots say, oh, I'm sorry, guys, we, uh, we are in Rio, Rio de Janeiro. Sorry about that. Was that ever a concern for you at all? Did the pilot see Honduras when he was way, way up there? What if it was dark? What if it was cloudy and stormy? Would he still be able to get there? Yes, he's relying on those navigational instruments to get him exactly where he wants to go. Not a little bit over here, not a little bit over here, but exactly where he wants to be, even though he can't see. But that is a lot like biblical faith where it's something sure, something proven. I recently heard the story about a lady who, when she was reading her Bible, studying her Bible, she would always write the letters T and P in the margins. You know why she would write T and P? It's not because you're thinking of something else, not that. No, it's because she would read a promise of God, and then she would experience it in lifetime, in real time, and it would be proven to be true. And she'd go back and she'd write, yep, I tried that and it's proven. So her whole Bible is covered with these letters T and P because she saw that God's promises were something that were true, something that were real. That's why I like that song that we sing uh, pretty rarely, but uh, tis so sweet to dress in Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. How I trust him, how I've what? Proved him more and more. Jesus, Jesus. Precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. I love those words. So how do we know Abraham wholeheartedly believed this? Next question for us. How do we know that he was fully engaged? How do we know that he had true biblical faith? What's the third step in this progression? There was a divine calling, and then there was wholehearted belief, and then what? Unhesitating obedience. Unhesitating. He, re he re obeyed the Lord right Away. Look at how, back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, look at how Abram responds to God. God gave him that call, leave everything that you know, leave everything that you hold dear. And then what did Abraham do? So Abram went forth. That's it. Abram went forth, as the Lord had spoken to him and lot with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now think about those two phrases from Genesis 12 and let them sink in. At the beginning it's, it says, the Lord said, go, and then Abram went. That's it. God said, go. Abraham said, yes. There's no sign of Abraham objecting, no sign of him arguing. 
He was just listening and responding in obedience and in faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed. That's always the right order. God's calling. We put our trust in it, and then we follow what he said. He subjected his plans and desires to God's plans and desires. Now, did Abraham's circumstances make it very easy for him to obey? Next question we have to think about. Is that why he did it unhesitating, because he didn't have anything better to do, and he was just, oh, that sounds like a good plan? That's not what happened either. How do we know that? Because Abraham didn't know where he was going. He had no clue at this point. How did God describe, at the very beginning of this call to go, how did God describe the land? What was the name that God gave the land? Did he describe it at this point? How did God describe the land? What did he call it? The land which I will show you. Is that the title? Is that the name of the land? Like, I want you to move to the place I will show you. Say, well, where is that? That's all God said at this point. And then what did Abraham do? God said, go, and Abraham went. That's it. And notice verse 8. It's even more difficult. Back in Hebrews 11.8, it says, It was a place which he was to receive as an inheritance. He was going to get it. He was going to be there, but it was not going to be his yet. He only had the promise, not the fulfillment at this point. He'd only received the promise. He was to receive it. Literally translated, he was about to receive it. He was going to receive it, but not yet. He didn't have all his questions answered. He probably really didn't have any questions answered at this point. His circumstances were not, just, were not just right, but he obeyed anyway. It was unhesitating obedience. And I think obedience is the forgotten duty of believers today. It is the forgotten duty of Christians all too often. I'm going to read you Jerry Bridges because... He'll say it much better than I, have, I ever can. It's that little book I read, a quote to you from a few weeks ago, The Pursuit of Holiness. And if you brought your steel-toed uh, boots and go ahead, or steel-toed dress shoes, you can put those on. Listen to this. Listen to what he says. It is time for us Christians to face up to our responsibility for holiness. you got to listen. Because too often we say we are defeated by this or that sin. Keep listening. No, we are not defeated. We are simply disobedient. It might be good if we stopped using the terms victory and defeat to describe our progress in holiness. Rather, we should use the terms obedience and disobedience. It would be much better. When I say I'm defeated by sin, I'm unconsciously slipping out from under my responsibility. I'm saying that something outside of me has defeated me. But when I say I am disobedient, that places the responsibility for my sin squarely on me. We may, in fact, be defeated, but the reason we are defeated is because we have chosen to disobey. Sin is something that we want to do. We have chosen to entertain lustful thoughts or to harbor resentment or to shade the truth a little bit and so on and so on. Disobedience rather than defeat. Now, that's a little bit of an overstatement because the Bible uses the word victory and overcoming, so I don't think we should drop those from our vocabulary. But whenever we are experiencing sin and we can't seem to get out of it, what's the first step? Confessing our sin 
And a humongous part of confessing our sin is owning our sin. And a huge part of owning our sin is saying, it's me. I'm responsible. No one else. I did it. I was disobedient. Now think about this. How you go about being obedient is just as important as obedience itself. The way, the manner in which you try to be obedient is just as important as the principle of obedience itself. Think about this. It's possible that you can be convinced of the, the importance of something and then go about it the wrong way, isn't it? And then wonder at the end of it why things aren't working out the way that someone promised or the way you thought they were. Same way with our obedience to the Lord. Last time uh, we were in chapter 11, we left off with an illustration of an old-fashioned pump well that you pour water into and to prime it, right? And then it'll start gushing water. But I think too often we think of faith that way. We think of it as something we have to pour a bunch of obedience into, pour a bunch of great things into, pour a bunch of effort into, and then we're going to expect a lot of faith to come out. But isn't that backwards? That's backwards. That's the cart before the horse. We're going to be very disappointed that nothing is going to come out. It's going to be dry. It's going to be empty. That's backwards. We obey God's word. How? How did Abraham do it? By faith. There will be no God-pleasing obedience without faith. Obedience springs from faith. And the opposite is true. Disobedience springs from unbelief. Back in chapters 3 and 4 of Hebrews, what kind of heart was it that fell away from the living God? It was an evil heart of unbelief, an evil, unbelieving heart. If that's the case with you, if your heart's an unbelieving heart, if you do not believe God, if you're not taking him at his word, what's going to come out? Evil, sin, disobedience. If your heart is truly a heart that trusts God, what kind of things are going to come out of that fountain? Obedience. The kind of obe this kind of obedience is only found in someone who has met the living God. We shouldn't expect much. We shouldn't expect anything out of people who have never encountered the living God. The people who are most obedient are those people who have been overwhelmed by the wisdom, by the power, by the sovereignty, by the mercy, by the love of God. That's the kind of people we can expect obedience out of, people who trust fully in who God is and who, what he's done. We seek obedience to God by faith. There's no such thing in scripture as waiting for the right feeling and then I will obey. We are called to put all of our confidence, all of our faith in the person and the work of Christ and then move forward in obedience and trust him to make good on his promises. So we are obedient by faith. And if it's a living faith, it's going to blossom into obedience. Obedience by faith. And this is so important because we can very easily lay tons of amazing and great new, new covenant commands onto each other. We can lay them up, layer them up, put them on each other and pile them up and then forget the whole foundation. And is that going to work? It's not going to work. We have to do it by faith. Trusting in who God is, what he's done, a reasoned response to his revelation to us. Now consider the second lesson about faith that we can learn from Abraham and his family. Sojourning by faith. Being sojourners by faith. Look at verse 9. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city 
which has foundations, whose building and architect is God. One of my teachers in seminary was a man who moved around a decent bit uh, to teach people in various places, train men for ministry, and that's just how his life was. And what he would like to say is, he says, I'm like Abraham, I have short tent pegs. And that's what he did. But on that level, I can't relate. I've lived in the same four-mile radius for 31 years. <laughs> I can't relate to this one bit. But being a sojourner was Abraham's way of life. That is what he knew, at least from 75 years old and onward. He was a sojourner. That's how he lived. He didn't have rights as a citizen. He didn't have civil rights. He didn't have a permanent dwelling. Keep your, if your finger's still there in Genesis chapter 12, look at verse 8. Show you a few verses about how Abraham lived. Genesis 12, 8. It says, Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel. This is after he obeyed the Lord and moved, started moving toward Canaan. He proceeded from there and he did what? He pinched, he pitched his tent. He pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And a little bit after that, there was a famine, so he decided to go to Egypt. And that's where he picked up this bad habit of calling his wife his sister, which he kept on doing, and he passed it down to the next generation and never worked really at all for anybody. And then he left Egypt and went to the Negev. And then look at chapter 13, verse 12. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Tent dwellers. Look at verse 18, chapter 13. Then Abram moved his tent again and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. A couple of decades later, where is Abram living? In his tent. Genesis 18, 1, you don't turn there. But the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of day. This is how he lived. In tents. He was a person who had a life of waiting. There are many things that we can see accomplished within our lifetimes. We can see our, our children be born. We can see them grow up. We can see them graduate. We can graduate ourselves. We can go through our careers. We can retire. These are all things that we can see accomplished within one lifetime. But by the very nature of God's covenant with Abraham, it was designed by God to be something that outlived Abraham. And aren't you glad that it did outlive Abraham? I'm very glad that it did. God planned it in such a way that its fulfillment would not even come close to happening within Abraham's lifetime. This is how this covenant was designed. Abraham was 75 years old when he left for the land of promise. He was 100 years old whenever the son of promise, whenever Isaac was born. Now, how old was he when he died? Bible trivia time. 175 years old. So how long was he waiting how long was he a, twin, a tent dweller? Simple math. He was, it was 100 years of just moving tents, waiting, waiting for the fulfillment with all kinds of things that threatened the promise throughout. And we'll see more of those next week. All kinds of threats to the promise. 100 years of sojourning, 100 years of waiting. Now, it wasn't very unusual for people in that day to live in tents, but that's not the point. The point of Hebrews 11 is that Abraham was looking for something else. Abraham was looking for something better, and he knew it. So how could he be so patient? How could he wait for that long, knowing that it wasn't going to be fulfilled? 
And how do we know that he knew that? Because it says right here in Hebrews chapter 11. What was his motivation? Look at Hebrews 11. Look back there at verse 10. It says, for, because, he could keep living as an alien in a foreign land because he was looking for the city which has foundations. He was looking for something better. What was Abraham used to at this point? What was he used to living in? Tents. Do tents have foundations? Mm -mm. They have pegs. He was looking for something lasting. He was looking for something that had foundations. His own home that he lived in was a reminder that he was not there yet. He was looking for foundations. He was looking for a better city. And why was this city that he was looking forward to going to be better? What does the verse say? Why was the city better? It says, whose architect and builder is God? Not just the one who built it, but the one who designed it and built it was God himself. The one who designed it and put it together. The same Jerusalem above that Paul was looking forward to, the same new heavens and new earth that Peter was looking forward to, the same Jerusalem coming down out of heaven that John talks about in Revelation 21, that was the same city that Abraham was looking forward to. He was looking for something better. At the bottom of it, a high view of God is what kept him going. A high view of God's sovereignty is what gave him the patience. A high view of God's wisdom is what kept him from despair. And for us, our exercise of faith, our understanding of faith, is going to grow or shrink directly in proportion to our view of God. So would you be okay to live like this? Would you be okay to live like Abraham? Some of you might say, as long as there's AC, maybe, as long as there's air conditioning and comfortable things. Would you be okay to live like this? Would you be okay to be a sojourner for 100 years, knowing that you're working on you see the promise fulfilled within your lifetime? God is probably not calling you to move to Palestine. He's probably not calling you to have a baby when you're 100 years old. He's probably not calling you to live in, in tents. He might be, and if he does, go ahead and do it. Go ahead and move forward in obedience. But the point here is that we learn lessons about what it means to live by faith. That's the point we are to take away from this. And there are two levels of application that I want you to consider as we close up. Two levels of application from these verses that I want you to think about as you apply this. There's a primary level and a secondary level. We'll start with the secondary one, and that one's there by implication, Okay. The secondary level of application, I think I put this up here for you. There we go. God's everyday plans he has for your life. Does God have plans for you individually? Does he have plans for Darren? Yeah. Does he have plans for Matt Miller? He does. Individual plans. Are they going to be different between you two guys? Yeah. Different plans. There are going to be particular plans about education, particular plans about your career, particular plans about who you're going to marry, particular plans about your children, all these different things. There's going to be special plans that he has in your life, and they're going to be unique. What do we have to do with those things in terms of how we relate to them and how we relate to God? Trust. Faith. Still the same answer. But you say it was easy for Abraham because we don't have God talking directly to us, do we? Or do we? It was easy for Abraham. He had a great privilege. He had a special relationship, special communication with God directly. But is it really different for us? 
Think about this. Is it really different for us? That's why I want to go to the primary level of application of this passage. And that is God's grand, overarching purposes for his people. How do we fit in with God's original covenant he made with Abraham? You say, well, that's a big question. But how, do, how do we fit in? Are we related to that in any way? Do we receive any blessings from that in any way? I'd say we're all in this room because of what God originally told Abraham. Does this passage apply to us? Does it apply to you? Does this original promise that God gave to Abraham apply to you? The answer is yes. Are we waiting still today for the same promise to be fulfilled? The same city that Abraham was looking forward to, are we looking forward to that same city? The answer is yes. If you've been reading your Bible lately, yes, that's where our hope is. We're looking forward to when Christ comes back and sets up his kingdom. We're looking forward to this. Our experience is still the same as Abraham's. We are sojourners just like he was. Our purpose is the same. We are among the people who have been blessed through Abraham, and now it's still our job today to be an extension of that blessing to the nations around us. Different circumstances, but the same plan, the same purpose, the same principles. It's all still there. Obedience to God's revealed will and trusting him that he's going to accomplish his eternal purposes of redemption. Now, I heard the Honduras team, they had to get up really, really early to go for their plane flight back. Really early because of a potential strike or something like that with the truckers. And then I heard, as they got there really, really early, so they would make it on time, I heard that they had to wait a little bit. Is that true story? So that sounds like hurrying up and waiting, doesn't it? It also sounds like something else that I'm familiar with, and I think you're familiar with too. This idea of hurrying up and waiting. Sounds like the Christian life, doesn't it? Sounds like the life we live as believers, where we hear God's call in Scripture. We wholeheartedly believe it. We, we want to run to obey, and we obey, and then what happens? What does God tell? What does God tell us? Wait. Wait. Be patient. Stay right where you are. And that's what he tells us. He's building his church. He is working in us patient endurance as he fulfills his grand purposes for his people throughout all of human history. And he will get more glory because of it. He's not just trying to make us wait it out. He's not just trying to make us sweat just to make us squirm. He's going to get more and more glory as we see all of his promises come to fulfillment when Christ comes back and makes everything right. So the question you have to consider this week is what are you willing to endure for the fulfillment and accomplishment of God's purposes? Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we love you, and we do love your word. We love how it reaches into our hearts and shows us where we're wrong, shows us where we're disobedient, shows us where we're relying on ourselves to become obedient. Lord, it shows us that all of our hope is on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. I do pray that we would trust in him, Lord, and that, that trust, that true faith, that wholehearted belief, and what he's done for us, Lord, would spring into obedience, would spring into a life that's glorifying to you, would spring into a life 
that will magnify Christ, will spring into a life, Lord, that will be contagious and show your glory to other people around us. And we do pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.